Well, amen, amen, good morning. It's so good to see each and every one of you. Thanks for joining us uh, for worship today. We're so glad you are here. Uh, and I do wanna also say a special word of thanks to our singers. Uh, thank you for them just kind of introducing and welcoming us into our messages each week in this series. And also to remind you, you too are invited to join them uh, out in the lobby. There's a place where you can be a part of this as we continue each week in this series. I want to welcome you to week two of this series, which is called Jesus Loves Me. We are exploring essential Christian beliefs. And the point of this series is simply to ask the question, what do we need to believe about God to access the power of God through Jesus? And our series is based on this book. Um, we will have uh, a few more copies that are still available if you would like to pick one up. You can also, of course, order it online. And it's available for you just to help you go deeper into some of these topics, especially uh, as you are discussing what we're learning in uh, your life groups uh, each week. And we're asking the question today, uh, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, when Jesus walked this planet 2,000 years ago, he met a lot of people. And some of those people experienced his life-changing power. He healed their bodies, he healed their minds, he changed the entire course of their lives. But others did not experience his power. Question is why? Uh, what was the difference? And you know, the same thing happens today. Many of us here in this room, we have met Jesus in some way and he has changed our lives, amen? amen. And I know many of your stories, you've shared them with me. Maybe you met Jesus as a child and you have followed him and he has walked with you all throughout uh, the years of your life. He means so much to you. Many of you met Jesus later on in life and he just changed everything. He rescued some of you from addictions, some of you from failed relationships, some of you he physically healed. Some of you, you don't live in shame anymore, whether that, that shame was put on you by something someone said to you or something someone did to you or whether it came from the way you had lived your life, some things that you did. Some of you have found purpose and you found meaning in Jesus that you never found anywhere else. But maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here today and you're asking questions and maybe you want to experience the power of God in your life. What's the difference between those who do and those who don't? What do you need to believe about God's power? This is what we're gonna be talking about today. And we're going to be seeing together that we need to believe some things about Jesus. To know Jesus' power, we need to know who Jesus is. In fact, one day, Jesus asked his closest followers, his 12 disciples, this very question. This is in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, back then, people had a lot of opinions about Jesus, just like today, but Jesus put this question directly to the disciples in verse 15. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And I wanna tell you right now, this is a question that every single human being must answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What will I believe about Jesus? And, and how will my life change because of what I believe? Now in that precise moment, Peter responded to Jesus' question in verse 16. It says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter and he says, yes, Peter, you are exactly right. You're exactly right. So what does it mean to call Jesus the Messiah, the son of the living God? That's what we're gonna be talking about today. This is actually the very first Christian belief that we're exploring. And you can see our series summed up on this card that you received when you were coming in. I hope uh, last week most of you got it. If you didn't get it yet, you can pick one up before you leave today. It, it shows you all of the basic beliefs we'll be discussing in this series. And if you're watching on online, this 
is available for a download on our app. It's at the very, very bottom of the message notes. You can get that there. And again, the idea of this series is this. If you were in a room, you didn't have a book, uh, you didn't have a Bible, you didn't have any internet access, nothing at all, and someone asked you, can you tell me what Christianity is about? Can you tell me what I have to believe to be a Christian, what I have to believe to access the power of God? This series is about you being able to tell them, uh, here's what it means to follow Jesus. And it's just as simple as the words of that very familiar children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we're just gonna be walking through those words each week today. What we're gonna see in a moment is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's God's son, he's our savior. Next week, we're gonna talk about his love. He loves, this means that he came into our world on a rescue mission to save us by dying on the cross and by raising from the dead. And then that word me, that means I need to understand some things about what God says about me, that I've sinned and I need a savior, but at the same time that I'm created in the image of God and I am, I am deeply loved. And then this I know means that I've trusted in Jesus for my eternity and I've admitted to myself that I can't save myself and I've, I've received the gift of salvation. And then that final phrase, for the Bible tells me so, is gonna show us how we need to have God's word, the Bible, as our standard for what we believe and, and how we live. And as we live according to God's word, it keeps us connected to the very power of God. And that's where we're gonna be heading in the weeks that are in front of us. But today, uh, the message is just called Jesus, fully God, fully human. And those brief words summarize what all of us need to believe about Jesus. I need to believe that he is fully God. I need to believe that he is fully human. Jesus is the God-man. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's pretty basic. Why are we talking about this? Well, there's two reasons that our study today is very important. Here's the first Many Christ followers, while they may agree with those words, are not actually clear on what they mean, on what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. And there are many of us, I suspect, in this room right now who have heard those things, and we kind of react by saying that's so profound, that's so complicated and complex that we kind of just give up mentally. We never really dig in mentally, and we never do our best to try to understand, to do all we can to grasp what is ultimately incomprehensible in full, what it means for the eternal God to send his eternal son to become a man, what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. But second reason is this. There are actually a whole lot of competing ideas out there about who Jesus is. Now, you probably know this, but today almost everyone esteems Jesus as one of the greatest persons, if not the greatest person who ever walked the planet. But most people do not know who he truly is. You know, maybe this has happened to you, but from time to time I'm at home and the doorbell will ring and I'll open the door and I'll find there in front of me two very nicely dressed people. Uh, sometimes it's men, sometimes it's women. And I'll immediately know that they are Jehovah's Witnesses. And usually they'll ask me if I want some literature, and usually I will politely tell them that I wouldn't really be interested, and then usually they'll ask me why, and then I'll tell them that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and then it gets interesting. They'll usually say, we are too, and I will say politely, well, no, you really aren't. And then the fun actually kind of begins. And for the next half hour or so, however long our patience or the time we have allows, we will talk things like theology and Christology, principles of Bible interpretation, you know, hermeneutics, church history. We'll get maybe into some Greek grammar along with a few other things. And they never persuade me. And I'm always praying that I will plant a few seeds of doubt. But our conversation is always all about our question today, who is Jesus? And there's a lot of different answers out there. 
the world religions all speak very highly of Jesus. For example, I'll show you a few of the beliefs. Islam teaches that Jesus was a great prophet to be revered, but he's not um, as, as great as Muhammad. He's inferior to Muhammad. Hinduism says Jesus was a wise man, an avatar, maybe an incarnation of God, much like Krishna. Buddhism teaches that Jesus wasn't God, but an enlightened man like the, the Buddha, um, only much, much thinner. Um, New Age guru Deepak Chopra once said, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. And the Dalai Lama says Jesus was either a, a fully enlightened being or a bodhisattva, which is someone who aids others to enlightenment, or of a, of a very, very high spiritual realization. And, and then you go to churches, and even in what are called mainline churches, progressive Christians, uh, there are many people who say, well, Jesus was a good man, but not the God-man. Jehovah's Witnesses that I've alluded to, they say that Jesus was Jehovah's first created being who Jehovah used to create all things, and they equate him with Michael, the archangel. He's a created being that actually became a man. Some of you know this from your family or your friends. Mormonism teaches Jesus was heavenly father's firstborn spirit child in heaven, that he was a God, uh, excuse me, he was a man who became one of many gods. And it's also taught that, that Jesus was a polygamist and he's the half-brother of, of Lucifer or of Satan. And, and then there's Scientology, which teaches that Jesus was an implant forced upon a Satan about a million years ago. And I would explain that to you, but I don't smoke weed or drop acid, so I don't quite know what to say. Um, and then, because we like to go deep around here at Southwinds, there's Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. You remember the Ricky Bobby prayer? Here's the Ricky Bobby prayer, dear tiny baby Jesus in your tiny baby manger crib with your tiny little hands and feet watching your tiny little Einstein baby development videos. Use your tiny little superpowers to keep me winning on the racetrack. Amen. And his wife, of course, only marginally sharper than Ricky Bobby, she says, you know, I don't think you're supposed to pray to little baby Jesus because he grew up and he became a man and I think you're supposed to pray to grown up Jesus. Ricky Bobby says, I don't wanna pray to that Jesus. I like praying to the little baby Jesus because it makes me feel good just to think about him being a little tiny infant. So, so when you're praying, you can pray to the grown-up Jesus or the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus or whoever you want to, but I like Christmas Jesus. I like a cuddly little baby Jesus. I wanna pray to him. Now we know, of course, the movie writers were just trying to be funny, but they actually put their fingers on a very real problem, and that problem is this. We all tend to replace the real Jesus with the Jesus we want. And maybe we like the tiny little baby Jesus because he makes us feel good, and we just don't want a Jesus who grows up and places demands on our lives. Or maybe we wanna pray to the bailout Jesus. You know, the Jesus who's always there when you need him, but if you don't need him, he leaves you alone doesn't bother you. You can live how you want to. Or maybe, maybe we like gentle Jesus. He never judges anyone. He never tells us we're wrong. He always just tells us how very special we are. See, we all share this tendency to try to make Jesus the way we want him to be. But you see, the Bible clearly teaches that there was and there is a real Jesus. And coming to know the real Jesus is the most important thing anyone can ever do. It's what you might call a watershed issue. Do you know what a watershed is? If you don't know what it is, I'm gonna show you a picture. This is a picture of a watershed divide. It's in northern Colorado. Um, it's part of the Rocky Mountains. And basically, a watershed is this. Whenever it rains, rain water lands on the ground, and it always flows downhill. It'll flow to a creek. It'll flow to a river. Sometimes it'll flow to a lake. Eventually, most water ends up in the ocean. And the path that the water takes is called the watershed. And there are places around the world 
where there's this divide at the top of a mountain. And if you drop a bucket of water there, one half maybe of that water is gonna go one direction. The other half is gonna go another direction. One half's gonna end up in one ocean, the other in another ocean entirely. And in our country, we call this a continental divide. And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. If you drop a bucket of water right at this spot, half of it eventually ends up in the Pacific Ocean and the other half is gonna end up in the Atlantic, thousands of miles apart. You see, at a point like this, there is a a world of difference in just a few inches. And that's how it is with our essential beliefs about Jesus. Because if if Jesus is just one God among many, then so much of what he said isn't true. If Jesus is just a good man and a teacher, but not God, then he doesn't have the power to save us and we cannot know God and we cannot experience his power in our lives. And what I hope you are hearing and I hope you're understanding is that knowing who Jesus is, believing in him as the real Jesus and following him, that is everything. And we're gonna see today in the Gospel of John, the very first chapter, the very first words of John's Gospel, we're gonna see John telling us who the real Jesus is. In fact, John is confronting us with the real Jesus and he tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully human, God made man. Now we're gonna look today at two truths that show up in John's words that tells us uh, what that means. And I'm gonna put them as simply as I possibly can. Here's the first thing, you can write this down in your notes. Jesus is fully God. Look at what John says in verses one through three. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been Now, now John's first words here in the beginning was the word. They they lead the reader to immediately think of something, and that is the very first words of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis chapter one, verse one. And what is happening here is when John takes our minds to that account of creation, he is doing this. He is putting Jesus where we expect God. God. I want you to listen carefully as we kind of walk through these verses. I want you to hear how John describes Jesus. And he shows us the deity of Jesus in four different ways. I'm gonna give you phrases to help you understand each of these ways. Here's the first one. He describes Jesus as eternally existent. In the beginning was the word. You see, when creation happened, Jesus already was. He didn't have a beginning when space and time came into being, Jesus already was. When matter and energy first pulsed with light and power, Jesus already was. One scholar writes these words, the word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the word was not created. The word is not to be included among created things. And this reality is so mind-blowing, so profound, so ultimately incomprehensible in its fullest sense that in the end we must accept it by faith. I was remembering this week something that happened about 20 years ago, a couple of years before we moved to Tracy and my family, we were at home in our suburban Chicago home, we were doing Christmas devotions and we actually were talking about this passage and, and our third child, Matthew, was about six or seven. And as I talked about the fact that Jesus was eternal, that Jesus always existed, that he didn't have a beginning, Matthew said, Dad, when was God born? And sensing a teachable moment, I said, well, Matthew, God didn't have a beginning. In fact, son, I know you're so excited to hear about this, but, but God, God possesses a quality that I know you're gonna enjoy learning about today. God has something called aseity. This just means that God isn't dependent on anything outside of his, his being and his nature. God just is, God just exists, God always has. And I was pretty pleased with myself But Matthew just said, but dad, when was God born? And I tried again. 
And after I got done, Matthew again said, yeah, okay, but when was God born? And I think I tried four or five times, about the fourth or the fifth time, I don't really remember how many times Matthew kept asking that question. Our two older children were yelling at him, telling him to quit asking questions. And it wasn't because they grasped a saity. (laughs) They just wanted to be done with devotions and get back to doing whatever it was they were doing before we started the devotions. They didn't understand a saity any more than he did. They only understood it a little less than I do. It, It was just something we have to receive by faith because it's something that's beyond our finite minds. Now, if the word already was in the beginning, that he must have either been with God or he must have been God. And John actually teaches both. Second, John says Jesus was distinctly personal. This comes from these phrases, the word was with God in verse one. And then in verse two, he was with God in the beginning. And this tells us that the word is a person who has a relationship with God. Now, once again, back to the creation account of Genesis 1, we read that and we'll see this phrase, and God said, occurs eight times. And it was by his word that God brought creation into being. And John is now telling us in John 1, 1, that this word is a person and this person was with God. And then he drives the truth home in verse two by reiterating he was with God in the beginning. And what John is beginning to do here is to unfold what Christ's followers will come to know as the doctrine of the Trinity. John wants us to understand not only the eternity of the word, but also the personhood of the word, that the word is a person and he's in relationship with the Father. This actually warns us against another perennial heresy, an error that uh, people can fall into, which denies the distinct personhood of each member of the Trinity. I'm not gonna take the time to really dive into this, but basically some groups kind of collapse Father, Son, and Spirit into just one person. But the doctrine of the Trinity states, in the unity of the Godhead, the one God, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now again, I know, this is hard to understand. How can there be one God, but three distinct persons in that God? But there are verses like this that cause us to have to believe it. And by the way, can I add to this? Do you understand that if you got everything about God, he wouldn't be God? We should not be surprised that infinite God is beyond our comprehension, right? I mean, does anybody really wanna worship a God that you fully understand? No, because that wouldn't be God. That would just be whatever my mind can conceive. And so even though we don't grasp it, even though it's beyond us, we can still say that's what we would expect if this really was about God. And so, so when John is speaking of the word, he means God the Son, Jesus Christ, and he's saying that Jesus eternally lives in relationship with, he's always doing the will of God the Father. Now, again, some people deny that these are distinct persons and they will say that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they're just different modes of this one undifferentiated God, but that also doesn't work because while one person can be by himself, one person is never with himself, that's illogical. And so John is just insisting here that the word is the distinct divine person. The word was with God. And then he moves to the third thing, and he says here, Jesus was fully divine. That's the phrase, the word was God. Now again, don't miss it. John is putting this about as boldly and bluntly and plainly as you can. The word which is Jesus, the word was God. He's not just a companion to God. He himself is fully divine. Now, there's a lot of stuff out here about this, and one of the things I wanna point out, some of you will remember a few years ago now, the the best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, asserted that Christians actually never considered Jesus to be God until the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. But 
look at this right here, very clear language. This is the first century when this was written by the apostle John. He is saying the word was God. And by the way, you can read the Da Vinci Code as a novel if you want to, but I wanna tell you the history in the Da Vinci Code, and I say this as someone who's actually studied history academically. That's where my PhD is, is in history. I can just tell you the history in the Da Vinci Code can be summed up in one word, actually several words. I'll just use one that's appropriate in church. And that word is nonsense, okay? It's not good history. No one who knows history actually believes it. So read it if you want to as a novel. Ignore the nonsense that is behind it. Back to John. John repeats this claim that Jesus is God in verse 18, saying this, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And this is really what you see. Just keep turning the pages in the Gospel of John again and again and again. We are shown that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We get all the way to the end of the gospel. And you remember the story about Thomas and he was doubting that Jesus had been raised from the dead and Jesus comes and encounters Thomas and Thomas falls on his face and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He makes the confession. This is the Christian confession. And John wants us to know from the beginning of the gospel through the end of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the word, is God. And this is a very important statement in the church's fight against error and against the earliest heretics. There was, in church history, a a renegade priest. His name was Arius, for instance, and his teaching actually prompted that council of Nicaea. It took place in 325 A.D., and He taught that Jesus, though certainly God-like in many ways, was nonetheless less than God. He said Jesus was a created being, um, however glorious and close he was to God. And today, because John 1.1 is so clear in stating Christ's deity, it is still attacked. And I had alluded earlier to Jehovah Witness teaching. This is Arius teaching. His argument is essentially what Jehovah Witnesses say today. They, they say John teaches, you know, not that Jesus is God himself, but rather that Jesus is this, this God-like creature, that he's divine, but he's not a deity. And Jehovah Witnesses today make this claim on the basis of the fact that in this final phrase of verse one, John actually places a definite article, the word the, before word, but he doesn't do that before God. And they claim that John is actually saying the word was a God, but not the God. Now I get it, Uh, this may go deeper in the uh, weeds than you may want to go, but I'm the one you know, leading this ride, so too bad, you gotta kinda come with me for a minute. But let me give you real quickly four responses to that claim, and maybe that'll help some of us as we, we talk to people about this. First, It is clear throughout the gospel that John intends for us to identify Jesus as God. And what that simply means is believing that Jesus is God does not depend just on this one verse. And what John is saying in other places actually clarifies his meaning here. Second, if John meant to say that Jesus was God-like but not God, there's actually a perfectly good Greek word for that, and John did not use that word. Uh, The word he did use, theos, which is transliterated T-H-E-O-S, that means God. The word for God-like adds just one letter. It's T-H-E-I-O-S. Again, John didn't use that word. And then third, while the Arian and the Jehovah Witnesses argument may convince novices in New Testament Greek, in fact, Greek grammar does not demand a definite article for both nouns when they are joined in this way. And there's a really complicated grammatical term for this, which I know you do not care about, so I'm not gonna bother you with it. Simply, let me say, it is very common for one definite article to serve for both nouns, and so the grammatical argument is obviously wrong. And by the way, no one who does Greek grammar actually believes this except Jehovah Witnesses. Even Greek scholars who are not Christians 
don't believe this because they know the grammar. And then fourth, there is actually an obvious reason for John's construction. It's what we've been talking about. His point is both to identify the word as God, meaning God the Father, but also as distinct from God. And if he had written the word was the God, he would be identifying Jesus with God in a way that they would be indistinguishable. And his point is clearly to specify Christ's deity while also distinguishing him from God the Father. Aren't you glad you came today to hear that? Now, whether you are or not, I hope that you get what I'm driving at and that John is telling us Jesus is fully God. Here's the fourth thing that John tells us. Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse three says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And as I stated earlier, in Genesis one, we read eight times that God said, and it was by God's word that he brought creation into being. And this also sheds light on a verse in Genesis one, verse 26, that you may have wondered about. It says, then God said, let us make man in our own image. And what's happening there? You've wondered about that. How could the one God talk like that? Well, God was speaking to the word. John is clarifying this in verses two and three. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we see this picture, distinct persons, but they're together. The word is God's agent in creation. The word is the one who accomplishes God's will. God said, let there be light. And the word created the light. See, all through the Bible, we read it as God's word that accomplishes God's will. Psalm 33, six says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 107, 20 says, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. You see, the word who created all, he is the one who brings salvation. And you keep going through the New Testament, you get to places like this, Colossians by the apostle Paul, chapter one, verses 15 through 17, say he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What John is trying to show us is that everything that makes God God, Jesus possesses. The word possesses. And this is so huge. Because John leaves no room for us to imagine that 2,000 years ago, some religious guru was born or some good teacher or some prophet. He leaves no room for even the idea that, that Jesus was divine, you know, but kind of in a, a small G God way, that there's this like big G God and Jesus is sort of his auxiliary God, his underling, his subordinate, you know. John rules all that out. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John clearly states the full deity of Jesus, that Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem who grew up in a carpenter's home in Nazareth, that teacher, miracle worker, leader, Jesus was Messiah, the infinite God. And here's what you need to know today. To experience God's power in your life, you must believe that Jesus is fully God. You got it? Second, Jesus is fully human. He is the infinite God made man. And we see this in verse 14 of John chapter one. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and again, this verse tells us something incredible. And it may be hard, think about this, it may be hard to believe that Jesus is God, but if you really think about it, it's just as hard to believe that Jesus was fully a man, one of us. But it's just as important Maybe you've never thought about this, and it might be good to write it down. It is just as important to believe that Jesus was fully man as it is to believe he was fully God. See, you can no more be a true Christian not believing that he's God than you can be a true Christian not believing that he's fully human. 
It is that essential, that important. See, the basic idea that's all through the Bible is that the only way we can be saved is if God comes to save us. The church father, Athanasius, also in the fourth century, he once said this great quote. He said, a creature cannot save a creature any more than a creature can create a creature. See, Jesus had to be God to pay the price for sin, but he also had to be human. I mean, how can you pay for humanity's sin unless you're human? And that's what Paul's driving at in this uh, passage in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. To meet our need, Jesus has to be God, but he also has to be human. Now, John uses a wonderful uh, phrase in verse 14. He uses that divine title word. It's the Greek word logos. And he says the eternal God became flesh. And then he says the word made his dwelling among us. And literally the Greek word says he, he tabernacled. And this is meant to remind us of the Old Testament tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt, that, that primitive tent that was carried around the desert. And John is saying, God came to earth, God pitched a, a, pitched a tent, he moved into our neighborhood, he became one of us. Jesus came to be with us. And when you stop and you try to comprehend this, you quickly begin to realize this is about as hard to believe about Jesus as believing his deity. And that's why this has been a struggle all through the history of the church. There was actually a very early heresy, which is another word for error. In the ancient church, first century, this, it, this was called docetism. This is spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. And basically, these people said that deity and humanity cannot go together. They're like oil and water. They just don't mix. And so they said Jesus just appeared to be God. He wasn't really God. He was really a man who appeared to be God. And so they were known as the docetics. It comes from a Greek word, which means to appear. And the early church quickly condemned this as heresy. In fact, maybe you don't know this, but the first letter that the apostle John writes, 1 John, is all about combating this very heresy. Go back and read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. And the reason John said Jesus cannot just appear to be a human being was this. If he just appears to be a human being, you can't be saved. And I think we still struggle with this. We have a hard time thinking of Jesus as really a human being like us. This kind of leaks out in a number of interesting ways. Like one of the examples is even some of our Christmas carols when they're talking about Jesus coming. I think the best example of us hesitating uh, to attribute true humanity to Christ is in that, that very familiar carol, Away in a Manger. You know that line there that says, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, why would we say that? Why would we say that if he was a real human baby? And probably it's because we just don't really wanna think of him as a real baby, do we? We, we don't wanna think that maybe the baby Jesus was gassy. I mean, we don't, we don't wanna think about it. Do you think Jesus pooped his diapers? Are you offended that I would even make that suggestion, you know, like in church? If you are, could it be that you're unconsciously maybe diminishing his true humanity. I mean, the Bible teaches Jesus was fully human, and that means that he experienced all of the limitations of humanity that we experience, yet without sin. That also would mean things like this. I mean, Jesus lived in a warm climate like we, we do. That means Jesus sweated, right? And I think that has to kind of mean that Jesus probably had B.O. Does that bother you to think that Jesus had B.O.? Jesus was fully human, just like we are, yet without sin. Now, why does this matter? Well, let me tell you three things about Jesus' humanity, all very essential. Here's the first one. Jesus had to be fully human to be our example. Our example. 
See, Jesus came to earth, didn't he, to show us what God was like, that God was love. Christ demonstrates God's love by coming and dying for us. He is a window into who God is. But do you also understand at the same time, he is a mirror meant to show us who we are meant to be. Jesus is the ultimate example of a fully human person. That means you cannot understand what it means to be fully human until you know Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter two, verses 21 and 22 says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Well, what does example mean? What kind of example? Well, that Greek word was used uh, of a copybook. And some of you do elementary education know the kind of thing I'm talking about or if your kids are young, it's the kind of thing where all the letters and all the numbers are written down and the child is supposed to copy what is there and they follow the example and they, they learn the letters and numbers that way. It's interesting to think that Jesus was that for us. Jesus, the only perfect human being who ever lived. I wanna tell you something you may never thought of before. It's very important, so listen really carefully. Biblically, the essence of being fully human is to be like God, not like ourselves. Let me say that again. Biblically, the essence of being fully human is to be like God, not to be fully ourselves. See, the Bible teaches that we're created in the image of God. God created us. God made us. That means God determines and God defines what it means to be human. He knows who we are. He knows who you are. And you are most like yourself, who God made you to be, when you're like God. I'm gonna give you an example to kind of think about you may know this, maybe you don't, but I looked it up. A couple of days from now, it's gonna be full moon. We're a couple of days away from that. And so let me ask this question. When is the moon most moon? And the answer is when it's full of the glory of the sun. When are we most human? When we're full of the glory of the of God. You see, here's something our culture is so confused about, but the Bible is so clear about. As human beings, our identity is always derivative. That means, biblically, we are only fully human when we fully reflect what God is like. That's when we know who we are. And I wanna tell you something. It is not an accident that in our increasingly secular age, when more and more people have decided that God doesn't exist or that God, if he does exist, is just irrelevant, it is not an accident that identity has become this all-consuming, pervasive, I mean, it's everywhere in the air we breathe, this issue for so many people. Why? <laughs> you cut yourself off from your creator and you cut yourself off from your true source of identity. You cut yourself off from purpose and meaning. That's why people have become so confused. That's why we have decided that we are the gods who determine our identity. You know, people everywhere will tell you, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, find yourself? Well, you just look inside, right? That's the answer. But have you noticed? The more we search for our identity within, the more confused we get. Have you noticed? You don't find yourself when you look in. I'm telling you today, please hear me today, you only find yourself when you look up. When you look up. The only way anyone ever finds their true self is in Jesus. And that's because he created you and he knows who you are and he lived as a human being to show you who to be. Second, Jesus had to be fully human to be our substitute. See, not only does Jesus live the life we should have lived, he dies the death we should have died, and in dying for us, he accomplishes salvation. The Bible says that Adam, the first 
created man. He was the pioneer of our fallenness. He sinned and brought sin into the world, and we've all sinned. Jesus, by contrast, is the pioneer of our salvation. In the same way that Adam died for his own sins, Jesus comes, and having lived the life all of us should have lived, he dies the death all of us should have died. He pays the penalty for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so Jesus goes to the cross and takes our place, dies our death, takes our punishment, and in rising again from the dead, proves that he did all of those things and that we can be forgiven. And he has to be human to do this. If God only came and died, it wouldn't be enough unless he becomes one of us. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to be one of us to save us from our sins, to be our substitute. Third, Jesus had to be fully human to be our friend. Now, what do I mean by that? I think it's something all of us implicitly understand. We all recognize that we trust and we rely more on people who've been there, right? People who understand us, and they understand us because they've actually lived what we've lived, especially when it comes to suffering. They've suffered what we've suffered. And you know, some of you, I know you've told me your greatest fear is you have this problem and you go to your therapist and you just open up your heart and you pour out your troubles and you tell them everything inside of you. And then the therapist looks at you and says, you did what? What? In 20 years of practice, I've never heard of that. You should be on Jerry Springer. You're disgusting. I can't help you. There's no hope for you. You're never gonna open up to someone who doesn't understand you, right? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus experienced everything we experience. Verses 17 and 18 says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came to experience everything we experience. And he came knowing that we would nail him to a cross. And that means this, which just blows my mind. What's amazing about the incarnation is not only that God is, became human. I mean, that's stunning enough in itself, but that God would want to. I mean, I look at my life sometimes, maybe you do this too, and I look at myself and I think, you know, there's, there's nothing in me that would make me lovable to God. Have you ever thought that to yourself? I guess, you know, they say God loves everybody. I guess, I guess God's kind of okay with me and, you know, he must love some people, but I don't, I don't know how he loves me. He probably just kind of tolerates me. And I know I'm describing some of you because I've had so many people tell me they really have a hard time believing God does anything more than tolerate them. I was thinking this week, we haven't had many family get-togethers this past year, and I bet you there's gonna be a bunch of them this summer. You're gearing up to get together with people. Finally, you know, everybody's vaccinated, and you were looking forward, we're gonna see our family, we're gonna see our friends, and maybe you plan something. You ever had this happen? You plan something, you invite a bunch of people, and then all of a sudden you hear that your weird uncle's coming. Do you guys have a weird uncle? I don't know, maybe your weird uncle's here at church, so you don't wanna say but there's always that person, you know, and they're just kind of creepy and they make everybody uncomfortable and you just kind of have to tolerate them. And, and maybe some of you feel like God sees you like that weird uncle. He can't really love you. He just kind of puts up with you. 
But here's the point of Jesus coming. He came to be our friend. God wants to live with you. God wants to be with you. Jesus didn't come to earth just to gather all the beautiful people. Jesus came to outcasts. Jesus came to losers. Jesus came came for prostitutes and tax collectors. He came for addicts. He came for people who could never live up to their own ideals, who failed all the time. He came to you. He came to me. And God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so God declares his love in the strongest language possible. He declares that love in person. Listen to John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. If you really wanna know God, then get to know Jesus. The better you know Jesus, the better you know God because Jesus perfectly reveals God to us. I want you to notice one more thing here in this verse. It says, the son is in closest relationship with the father. And in the Greek text, it, it literally says, the son is in the bosom of the father. Now, we don't use that word. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, and this might seem like a, a strange question to ask right now, but I'm gonna ask it. Um, how many people have access to your bosom? Not many, right? I mean, maybe your spouse. Why? Well, think about it. It's an intimate place. It's an exclusive place. And maybe your spouse can, can snuggle up next to you that way. Maybe your kids when they're little, but you know, when they grow and get older, even that changes. Why? Because it's intimate, it's exclusive. It's the place of deepest love. And that's where the father and the son want to go. God offers to share that kind of love with you, with me, because he loves us. And he wants us to know him. And you can know that love, but to know that love, you need to know him. And that starts by believing in him. Knowing God doesn't mean you understand everything about him, but it does mean you've accepted his revelation of himself to you. You've believed that Jesus is God's own son, fully God, fully man. And you're seeking to know him more and more deeply. That's a lifelong process, but it starts, it starts when you open your heart to him. It starts when you trust that he is who he said he is, that he has done what he said he's done, dying on the cross for your sins. Have you received him in that way? Have you come to know him in that way? If you haven't, would you like to? You can today. You can know him today. And I want to invite all of us together just to bow our heads and pray.